Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff, and we are now at episode number 103, and today we're talking about centering queer of color theorists and therapy and therapy training with Mira DeBar. And before we get there, two quick announcements, something I'm actually really excited about that I want you all to know about that you can actually participate in if you want to, is that uh, I am teaming up again, once again, with uh, the wonderful people, Julie Cho and Aaron Siegel at um, Thick Press, who put out our little book emerging project, just Jay Diarigo's and mine, a little project on going beyond critique and uh, get a partner with them again to do an encyclopedia of radical social work therapy and other helping and healing modalities. This is going to be something um, intended to nourish and inspire practitioners and students of social work, family therapy, psychology, psychoanalysis, counseling, coaching, group facilitation, medicine, energy and body work, birth and abortion, doula work, art movement therapy, social practice in the arts, mutual aid, and other helping and healing modalities. And I'll be co-editing, like I said, with uh, Aaron and Julie on this. And uh, if you would like to be a part of this, we would love to have you. Uh, we would be looking for, you know, short uh, entries, just a couple of sentences. It could be longer, but probably no longer than a thousand words. It can include an image or two if there's a particular topic you're interested in. Uh, well, you know, just reach out to me. If that sounds interesting to you, reach out to me. I will email you the call and then you can get all the, there's because there's a lot of details about what we're trying to do and how we're looking at it and how we're looking about, um, you know, that all the uh, en entries in our encyclopedia exist in the realm beyond critique. So that's going to be a new one for a lot of folks, I think, too. So, uh, but it's going to be exciting. There's going to be, you know, if you're seeking some inspiration, there are already contributions in process like uh, Clouds as Metaphor. This is by Alan Irving. He's a social work uh, uh, ed educator and author of Reading Foucault for Social Work. We have Echo Anxiety by a psychoanalyst, Emily Schlesinger, Schlesinger I think I'm saying that right. Uh, stuff on holding space, uh, mutual aid and organizing. I'm going to do something on narrative therapy. Uh, ongoingness by Aaron. Um, social change e ecosystem framework by Deep Air. Uh, just interesting stuff is going to be all part of this, and it's all meant to inspire and uh, those um, that want to practice in particular ways. So uh, reach out to me, uh, theradicaltherapist at gmail.com, if this sounds like something interesting you'd like to participate and contribute to. Uh, you will get a copy of it and all that kind of stuff if you do, and um, et cetera, et cetera. And there's other... Um, yeah, just a lot of stuff to get to you. So that's my first announcement. So the Radical Therapy, the Encyclopedia of Radical Social Work Therapy and other helping and healing modalities. If you would like to be a part of that, you want to contribute to something to that project, please shoot me an email and I'll get you the call and we'll have a sign-up sheet and all that kind of stuff. And we'll give you all the details. Anyway, the second thing is, is I'm uh, presenting at the Taos Institute gathering in November on Tuesday, November 15th at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
I will be presenting on Disciplined Imagination, Composing the Future in Therapy. And just to give you a quick rundown on this, this is, uh, you know, narrative therapy. This is my little blurb. Narrative theorist and practitioner Michael White wrote that when someone is considering entering some form of liminal space, like the co-creation of possible futures, that it is important to gauge in some uh, predictions of the experiences one might expect in these efforts. And I believe that White knew that these significant periods of confusion and disorientation and at times despair and de desperation and often accompany journeys into liminal space could shut down these efforts and have these travelers turning back toward more familiar territories. And, you know, we're in a world right now where, um, you know, uh, we need tools that can support uh, cultivated liminality and or world making and or world making. And, and I'm going to talk about some practices. Uh, I'm going to talk about practice of scenarios. I'm going to draw on, you know, 16th century Italian street theater and, uh, and range to black Afrofuturism as uh, drawing on and uh, looking at ways people are talking and doing the future and world making and, um, and that kind of stuff. So if you're interested in that and just playing around with uh, predictive structures, uh, speculative structures, that kind of thing, uh, please join me for the Taos Institute gathering Tuesday, November 15th. And I just go to their website, Taos Institute, and you'll see all the information. And I'd love to see you there if you can be there. Okay. Let's get to our guest. Okay. Mira Dabar's uh, doctoral research focuses on how queer of color cultural knowledge can better inform the work and education of queer and color ther therapists and the counseling field in general. She seeks to move beyond the current frameworks of LGBT competencies and gay affirming therapy to a practice called queer world making, which centers cultural knowledge as well as queer epistemology, intersectionality, and decolonial theories. Mira is a consultant, narrative therapist, and clinical supervisor based in Vancouver, Canada. She provides queer intersectional supervision to individuals and teams. Mira is associate faculty at City University of Seattle, Vancouver Island campus. In their Master of Counseling program, her previous experience includes teaching in the School of Social Work at Ryerson University and University of British Columbia and working in healthcare, palliative, palliative care and the HIV and AIDS sector. So without further ado, let's chat with Mira. Welcome to the Radical Therapist, Mira. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. It's great to have you here. Um, okay, so... You know, we're talking today about basically about centering queer of color theorists and therapy and your work spotlights problematic discursive assumptions of queer and black indigenous people of color communities within mental health. And I'm wondering if you could say more about these assumptions, these discursive assumptions. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Chris, my background is a, as a practitioner, longstanding practitioner, um, as a therapist, supervisor, educator, has really informed my research questions and my thinking and my dissertation, which is where I've come to really, really interrogate and examine these uh, problematic assumptions. And, you know, what I know um, at, at the most basic level is that there's really not good information of what it means to be queer and BIPOC first of all you have to like a lot of it's really separated of either being racialized or being queer it's really hard to find what what the experiences 
the impacts on mental health are when you sit in those communities together. That's the first piece. I think the other piece is that that is missing is that we, because I identify um, as as a queer person of color, is our very identities are considered risk factors, right? So to be queer or to be BIPOC, what is being taught is the risk factors of substance use, suicidality, isolation, uh, anxiety, depression, etc. So we're taught the, we're, the the risk factors, but not the risk factors of homophobia, of transphobia, mm-hmm. of racism, and its presence. And so, how do practitioners then know how to sit with clients and really help them work through really difficult, painful experiences that that often are not connected or not seen as connected to gender expression? to sexuality, to being BIPOC, often, it, and I hear this time and time again from, from my own clients, like it's just anxiety. It's anxiety by itself mm-hmm. in this vacuum mm-hmm. or this depression by itself in this vacuum. And it's not connected to how I'm being seen and received or not being seen. Mm-hmm. And so I think at the very basis, I think practitioners are, are not learning how to really sit with clients and look at this broader piece also of, resiliency, strengths, community building, activism, resistance. I think that's really missing. Um, The other thing that I see happening, it just happened again yesterday. um, Actually, it happened twice in the last month where students had the courage to come forward. One practicum student and one student in my class had the courage to come forward and say, I actually don't know what queer, I'm not comfortable to use the word queer. Mm. I don't feel like it's a word I should use. I don't really know what it means. And they felt very uncomfortable having to admit that. Right. And and what a great disappointment in your master's program that you're getting to the end and that this is the question that a student would be asking. Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about that. Um, I think because sometimes, I mean, you and I probably run in particular circles where we kind of take it for granted in some ways, right? Or like... But there is the, like uh, this uh, this knowledge gap, which is you know a mile long in some ways, right? Yeah. And I'm surprised. Why did it still? Why does it still surprise me? And I have to really think about my own assumptions of how I'm teaching and my the assumptions yeah. that I'm not backing Same. up and saying, Same. wait, let's back up with what actually queer means. And maybe because I identify as queer, and they know my work is built around queer practice. They're more uncomfortable to ask me potentially. Mm-hmm. I'm not really sure, but how did we get to this place where this word is used so commonly and yet people aren't comfortable or or with under or understanding what it means? Yeah, which leads to my next question. In your work, you argue that queer people of color voices, viewpoints, perspectives are critically important to the mental mm-hmm. health field in general. And I'm wondering, you're already talking about that, but can you say more about that? Yeah, what I hear... Um, you know, I, I, I work in both, my, my education is in social work, but now I'm teaching and counseling. So I work with both disciplines in both fields. Mm-hmm. And what I hear again and again from almost all students is that they're really afraid of making a mistake. Yeah, right. They're really scared. If I ask you about your identity, if I ask you if you think is racism a, a factor here, is the isolation based on heteronormativity, something that you're experiencing, they're, they're, they're either afraid to ask, they're afraid to make a mistake. Sometimes they've said, am I imposing my own agenda? Mm-hmm. And I, I continue to hear this. And so um, 
how I try to overcome that or bypass that is in my teaching, I always bring in uh, speakers and colleagues either into classes or uh, in podcasts or little video conversations like this mm-hmm. who are queer or queer of color mm-hmm. so that we can really just listen to their voices, hear their experiences and really understand how they're um, conceptualizing their practice and the work that they're doing with clients. But what's happening is that we're not, I don't know what it's like where you in the work that you do, because mm-hmm. your context is very different from mine. I'm located in, Uh, Vancouver right now, Mm -hmm. Vancouver, Canada, Mm -hmm. where, you know, there's, I don't have that same level of diversity in my classes with my Mm -hmm. students. And you might, that might be different for you. Mm -hmm. In the textbooks, it's also completely absent. In, In textbooks, the case studies and the scenarios, the therapist is never named. Right. Often the client is not named. And so when we don't, when we don't, when the identity is not named, we presume we default to this privileged position of someone who is white, straight, cis, middle class, unless it's named. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that even racialized students say the same thing. They also don't assume the clients like them. Everybody's defaulting to this position of whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I think that and I think that the harm that that's causing is then students are not they don't know how to have these conversations with their clients they don't have to they don't know how to name their own positionality they're not comfortable with it um, they don't understand how that impacts the building of the therapeutic relationship and so they're so excited when they work with me and I start really naming these things and helping them learn how to name 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 the, the identity positions within their work. Because they're all learning, we're all learning the theory. We learn the theories really well. Intersectionality theory, anti-oppressive theory. We learn the theories, we don't learn what you do with it. And then they struggle with, well, so if I was never represented in the books, how do I know I'm doing therapy right? Right. My research participants told me that as well. They they really struggled when they were first practicing. I'm a queer person of color. I want to work with other queer folks or racialized folks. I don't know what's, I know something's different and I don't know what it is. Hmm. And I don't know if I'm doing this correctly then. So they're not also not learning to really listen to their own lived experience and let that inform their practice. Mm-hmm. That's great. And is that different from your context? Would I be right in terms of where you're you, you, you situated? Would, it's interesting because um, I teach, I've taught in different contexts and in, in Southern California, for example, in a school I'm teaching at now, I'm doing an adjunct, I'm teaching a family counseling class this fall for Cal State San Bernardino, which is largely, you know, uh, sec, our first gen students, right? And so, um, but then when I've taught in Orange County, where I actually live, it's, you know, predominantly white, right? And so it's just interesting how, you know, and the, the different experiences in each context, yeah. So. And what does it mean when we're trying to teach relationally? So often what I say to my students is, Think of who's not here and by virtue of that, whose voices are not missing and how that's shifting, how you learn from each other's experiences. Mm-hmm. So I really make them aware of the gaps. And then what they say to me is that they do have an awareness of their gaps and they really appreciate that I'm acknowledging it and really working to address it. That's great. That's they great. really appreciate it. Okay. Um so let's try. There has been a critique that theorists of, co- of color and queer theory is work that has been treated as an add-on with white Eurocentric theorists still being centered 
And I guess, how do you view this critique and what should therapists do with it? And I, you know, I've been reading Olafemo's, Taiwo's work on a light capture, and I'm really struck by the idea of building new rooms or world making rather than asking folks to leave the room, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think about all that. Mm, I love the term world making, first of all, mm-hmm. because it means, again, let's how I understand world making based on some of the cultural theorists that I have been reading is when I think of world making, I think of not just what we, what we, what we see with our colonial influenced eyesight. How can we really see from a world making lens? Who's, who's, who's here, who's always been here, whose voices are still here and how do we listen to it? which is very different from who's physically just here and then listening to them. So how do we bring those voices in? And um, which is again, why I really attempt to center those queer and queer of color, queer of color theor- uh, theorists and voices. Um, and to me, queer world-making, I, I like to call it queer, queer world-making for the purposes of my work right now. Sure, sure. Um, but I want to teach that distinction between um, LGBT, LGBT as these binary fixed identity positions. So once you're the L, you're always the L, hmm. regard, and, it, and it never changes. And so that becomes a fixed position with a lot of people find very restraining. Um, and then we, and then it's taught as a competency. So LGBT competencies versus the idea of queer as an identity with that's fluid, that's relational, that's situated, that's contextual, or the idea as when we think of queer as a worldview, so as a way of being, as a way of seeing the world, mm-hmm. as a way of moving through the world. Mm-hmm. To me, that's what world making is. It's like, how do we take all of this and how do we continue to move forward? Right. And escape the binary, even in, you know, social projects, right? Yeah. That binary is always sneaking up on us, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, It continues even with me. And so, again, getting back to this idea that students know the gaps, but they don't know what to do with those gaps. Or my practitioners or people that I supervise, they know there's gaps. And I believe for practitioners, but even for clients, the people that we're working with in mental health, there's an understanding that I want to say more. I just don't know how to say it. Mm. I know there's I've been impacted by my experiences and I'd like to talk about it, but I need someone to help me bring it from the back of my mind Mm. to the forefront and being able to verbalize and share that, which is difficult. It's painful. Um, It needs to be honored. It needs to be acknowledged, really treated with a lot of care and also understanding that there's also not always always good language for those experiences. That's what I think of as, as world making. Again, mm. it's the seeing, the hearing, the listening in a way that's very different from the colonial way of conceptualizing that. Mm. Is that how you think about world making? Yeah, yeah. I, I, you're reading something different. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah. I I like the idea of like you know what, what you know the. The fluidity that you're describing and and getting escaping the binary in these fixed positions and and then you know I'm really interested in like uh, Anna Louise Keating's work around post oppositional practice who she was very much you know very informed by Gloria Anzaldúa's work and is actually publishing a, a theory handbook on Gloria all of Gloria Anzaldúa's book it should come out any it's actually out I, I or I pre ordered it but. So these ideas. So I'm interested in these post-oppositional ideas. I think even in our sometimes in in, in that's why the light capture book 
kind of captured me, right? That the, that some of these uh, even best intentions have been hijacked in particular mm. ways and then pit us against each other again and again mm. and again. And, and so, yeah, I'm kind of interested in uh, how do we escape that, that op- oppositionality and... Um, yeah, and so yeah, you know, yeah. Right. I like that. It, that's important. The best intentions, how they've been hijacked. Yeah, right. Uh, but you, you, you talk. You're talking about colonization and decolonization, and I, I, that leads me to my next question, actually. And I, I, I'm wondering if you could say a bit about your view of decolonization. It's, <sighs> it's a word that's used quite a bit these days in many contexts. And, and how do you view the work of decolonization and therapy or mm. counseling? Yeah. I think, again, like a lot of identity uh, models or frameworks, as, and I'll, I'll talk in a little bit about intersectionality and anti-oppressive work, but decolonization very similarly has become something that we're supposed to know mm-hmm. and we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But what does that really mean? Mm-hmm. And um, as a practitioner, as as an academic, I, I want to keep learning how to center the voices that are that are missing often or that we've learned and and the difference between learning and taking and learning and honoring and really thinking about how to then really interrogate our practice. Mm-hmm. I question myself often as a settler in, in Canada on Turtle Island, and what am I doing to ensure that I'm really showing up in a way that really honors those perspectives, not just because of how indigeneity has been so erased but how to continually just interrogate our own practice and the colonial constructs of our work. And, you know, I was recently uh, invited to contribute a book chapter to a book. And when I found out that there was not anyone who was Indigenous that was represented, I turned it down Mm. because to me that didn't feel right. Um, I'm really driven by Two-Spirit scholar uh, Coley Driscoll. Mm. He wrote um, something that really, really... um, touched me so much. He asked three questions. Um, How can anything be decolonized while still on colonized land Mm -hmm. without actively addressing land redress, Mm self-determination and reconciliation with First Nations people? That's Mm -hmm. what we call them in Canada. Mm -hmm. How can we practice? How can a practice be decolonized without recognition and discussion of the influence of colonial ideologies of scientific claims of universalism objectivity and neutrality that is still present in counseling how can how can we say we're decolonizing our practice for not confronting those very ide- very ideologies which i see all the time for example in code of ethics and stealth disclosure mm-hmm. and pa- boundaries mm-hmm. and how do we decolonize while colonization is continuing so i really am i'm i'm I feel the, what is the word, the responsibility of those questions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to constantly think about my practice and what I'm doing and how I'm speaking with others. That's that's how I think when I think about decolonization, I think it's, it's something that we need to constantly be learning. That's great. Yeah. Okay. Your, your work is also interested and you've spoke spoken to this a little bit, but your work is also interested in the liminality of identities. And I'm wondering if you can say more about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, the beautiful place about my practice right now is how some things have just sort of fallen into place. I don't know if I would say random is the right word, but I was reading, a, I, I kept on seeing references. You mentioned Gloria Anzaldúa's work, Borderlands, particularly that book, and I kept on seeing reference to it. 
and it's not available electronically. So I'm like, I want to read this work. I keep reading it, keep seeing it referenced. Last summer, I was at a friend's house in Toronto and he had it on a shelf and I started reading it. Chris, I couldn't put it down. It's mm. like I've never had never thought of this idea of liminality, mm. this idea of liminal identities, mm. this third mm. space, this gray space. And it was so meaningful in terms of the 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 tension of trying to live as a queer person and as a person of color. And so instead of trying to reconcile those tensions, what about the idea of a liminal space and seeing it as this beautiful space from which to move the world? And I was so excited Mm -hmm. when I read her book and also the way she's written it with the prose, the Spanish and the English, like how you, 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 you feel the liminality while you're reading the book, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why it's such a beautiful piece of work. Mm -hmm. And so you know, like Julie Tilson's book, who you interviewed in January, very much like Julie Tilson's work, um, Borderlands was a was a huge game changer for me in terms of how I'm understanding identities and the tension and what we often term as, you know, we call it compartmentalization. I keep it separate. I'm either this or I'm either this. Right, right. And now here's this idea of saying you don't have to do it that way. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can think of it, conceptualize a different space. And I think it's not the work of mental health is, is the space, the conceptualizing the space that we're in when we're well, when we're not well, when we're doing better, when we're down. Mm-hmm. I think the work in mental health is about that space. Mm-hmm. And so this felt like a really beautiful parallel to something that I already understood about, about this space that can't always be named. Yeah. And here she was naming it in yeah. this beautiful way. Yeah, and that, I think it even as a you know white cis uh, straight guy, you know, <laughs> the the work affected me in a lot of the same way, and that that idea of liminality, right, and like and how, especially in training folks, and how you know I think our our field's culture wants to put every us in a box too. Everybody kind of boxes, you know, in, yeah. in certain ways. And so how can we escape that? And some of those, you know, that limit, the liminal idea, I think it's, it's so much of the work. I think I've, I've got, I've, I've gotten to the point I'm saying, you know, that what is therapy other than, you know, walking together through liminal space with folks. Mm. Right. And, that's kind of where I'm at with it right now. And and who's yeah. a, and Gloria Anzaldu is like a great guide for that kind of work, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Just beautiful. Just beautiful. It was so exciting. But I just loved that I happened upon the book. Mm-hmm. And then he said, please take it with you. So I read it on the plane all the oh, way back to Vancouver. Right? And I couldn't yeah. put it down. I yeah. couldn't put it down. I was so excited. Yeah. Um, all yeah. right. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Um, so we talked about that. What about, uh, you write about, this is interesting, you write about expansive intersectionality, and I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Right. So again, intersectionality is something that we learn theoretically. Intersectionality at, at its most base, basic uh, definition is the way different inter- in, uh, identities come together and how we sit with those identities. But again, what do you then do with that? So I've learned this theory. I learned it in school. We've talked about power. We've talked about privilege. We've talked about multiple social locations. And then what? So the idea of expansive intersectionality in all my research, I finally found one resource um, by by two queer practitioners who were sharing the idea of expansive uh, intersectionality. They were talking about um, 
working with couples. Hmm. And then they demonstrated in the article how when I'm working with this couple, this is what the couple's talking about. And this is how I may over-identify with one over the other. How might that show up in counseling? Like it's very practical. It really walks the practitioner through. This is what we want you to do. Hmm. It's not just who they are. It's who you are with them in this intersectional space. Mm-hmm. And so I was really excited by that, mm-hmm. that, I, that idea. And then I can use that to, to teach actually how to practice intersectionality. So that's mm-hmm. one way of thinking about expansive intersectionality. And then the second piece was self of therapist. Mm-hmm. And in this, this particular article, which, which I found in the Addison and Coolheart article, do you watch? Jones talked about how she again practically walked through how you do this, how you name who you are in the relationship with the client. So she says very practical things like wait till the third session. Don't start it in the beginning. Wait till the third session. Um, sometimes it's easier to have it's it's easier to have certain kinds of conversations than others. Sometimes it's harder to talk with clients about the fact that they make two two to three times more money than you do as a practitioner. So there's a big class difference between the two of you. How do you broach that conversation mm. versus talking about the client who whose income is far lower than yours? So she gives very practical tips about how you talk about this, how you talk about the neighborhoods that people live in, marginalized mm. neighborhoods, privileged neighborhoods. Who, and it's who, who is that again? Because I know people are going to ask me. <laughs> D. Watt Jones. Oh, yeah. D. Watt Jones. Okay. D. Watt Jones, yeah. Okay. Who I found from reading Addison and Coolheart's mm-hmm. work around intersectionality, and then D. Watt Jones was referenced in it. Got it. Was right. And so how do you do it? So these practitioners are telling us how to actually do it. And I think that's, again, what doesn't happen enough in, in a lot of programs and in, and in practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, so often in clinical in clinical supervision, in case conferences, the entire focus is on the client. The client is this, the client is this, the client did this, the client's problem is this, I don't know how to solve this. And everything is on the client. Mm-hmm. And if we step back and try to be really, truly, truly relationally intersectional, the questions that we should be asking are very, very different. And these are some of the questions that I really push when I see students doing this, they do this a lot. Mm-hmm. So now I just have them follow this template that they have to use before they present a client. And so some of the questions that they have to really think about and answer in their, uh, before we get to the transcript is, how do I describe the relationship with this client? What do I bring to the session? How did I build this relationship? Where did I get stuck and why? Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything I wish I had addressed? Mm-hmm. Anything I could do differently? What rep, what relationships are represented here that represent other relationships in the client's lives? Mm. But I had to really push them because they're so just like in counseling, um, where narrative therapy teaches us not to be problem saturated, problem focused. Mm-hmm. This is my way of really pushing them not to be client focused. You mm. can't just talk about the client right. because you're in that room with the client. Right. That's great. And you brought up narrative therapy, and that was my next question, because I know yeah. you're you're drawn to narrative therapy. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit of what attracted you to narrative therapy. Yeah, and again, <laughs> um, like Borderlands, it was one of these accidental, <laughs> beautiful, maybe not that accidental, beautiful, beautiful um, things that happened. I was looking, um, you know, I, uh, after being a social worker for, for decades, mm. I was asked to do some supervision in a nonprofit. In a queer counseling, in a queer sorry, queer nonprofit with a counseling program, and so I'm supervising uh, therapists and quickly realizing, you know, I need to really learn a little bit more about being a supervisor. 
oh, and then maybe being a therapist. Okay, I need to learn a modality. I've joined a practice. I'm still not comfortable. What's my modality? What am I drawing on? And I'm looking around for something to take. And here's this three-day intensive training. It's affordable. The timing is right. The location is right. And it happened to be narrative therapy. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea what it was. I had no idea, Chris. Mm-hmm. And so it started on Friday with, what is this? Why is everyone so excited? Like, they were just <laughs> so excited to be there. What is going on by Sunday? I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I was hooked. Mm-hmm. It's the anti-pathology stance, mm-hmm. the anti-problem focus stance, the meaning making, mm-hmm. the learnings. My partic- One of my particularly favorite ways of practicing narrative therapy with clients is helping the client learn from themselves trusting the client's own wisdom and knowledge and that they've gone through crisis before. What can we learn from that crisis that could help now? Who supported you before? Why are you isolated now? Why are you not telling anybody? It's just such a, this, the stance, the stance is what I love. It's not a do step one to step five. It's what's your stance. And from there developing your own particular style of narrative therapy, that's, I think what really is so meaningful for me because then I've gotten to practice it in a way that's meaningful for who I am and how I want to show up with my clients. Yeah, that's great. Okay. You also write about the invisibility that queer racialized students experience in training programs. And I'm wondering if you can say more about that. Yeah. And I think that's again, where that impact of erasure and and invisibility is that when students are not being, seen in their textbooks they're not seen in in who their faculty is or who's who their instructor is studies are still telling us when i started teaching over 10 years ago even now studies are still showing that the difference it makes to have a queer um educator or a queer professor and how queerness is more centered in the teaching as compared to when that's not there so there's still this big gap there's a really big gap i think in working with um, queerness and particularly queer color identities, mm. students are just not getting to really learn that they do have lived experience that they can bring and that they can use in these in the gaps that they're seeing in the work. Mm. That maybe it means that they have something that they need they can bring. And so, how do we highlight their voices, their knowledge? I call it cultural knowledge. Mm. How can we really think about what their cultural knowledge is, what they know? And how to help them see that that can be meaningful in their in their work. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's also about working relationally, mm-hmm. like right. And I think to work with our own community, to work with our own community is what what my again what what my, what I know and what my what my study participants had told me is that there's this joy, like when we get to show up as our full selves with our clients, and we don't have to pretend to be something we're not when they already know we're queer there's no issue of disclosure so-called self-disclosure mm-hmm. we get to be ourselves there's this joy we feel we're showing up fully and the client gets to show up fully and it's also messy it's also complicated mm-hmm. working in small within small communities um you have to and this is what julie Telson teaches around queering practice and queer relational ethics it takes a different intentionality mm-hmm to allow us to work in the way that we want to with our small community, but also then doesn't mean that we have to hide, that we don't go to social events. Mm-hmm. We can't go to um, sport. We can't join a sports team because our clients will be there. I was at a, I was at a 
um, Afro-queer event for Vancouver Pride last weekend and three colleagues were there and they, they, the three of them said a lot of our clients were here so they only spoke to each other. Mm. How do we not do that? Right, right, right. How do we, how do I as a practitioner get to be fully in community because it's just as important for me as it is for my clients? The one other piece I would add to that is the, is the how painful it is to work with clients who experience racial injustice, mm. homophobia, transphobia, heteronormativity, cisnormativity, and that can be very difficult. And so do we prepare students for that reality? And do they know how to, how to discuss this in supervision? Because it's very difficult. And what practitioners say is I wasn't prepared. I'm a black woman and I wanted to work with my community and it's far more challenging than I thought. And my education didn't prepare me for that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, which leads me maybe to my next question. You write about expanding anti-oppressive and affirming practices and tra yeah. training programs. I mean, could you say more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So again, anti-oppressive practice is something that um, in terms of my education in Canada is very centered in social work programs, mm -hmm. undergraduate and graduate programs. But the challenge again is do we teach power and privilege is binary fixed identity positions that between you and me, there's a fixed, without knowing you, without our having a conversation, mm -hmm. are there very clear fixed identity positions that create an us and them, mm -hmm. which means, mm -hmm. do I want to work with you? Should I work with you? Can I trust working with you? And so how do we move beyond just the positions to having a conversation about them? Mm -hmm so that I can feel comfortable to work with you and you can feel comfortable to work with me. How do we do that? And I don't think, again, we're bridging the theory with practice. And right. that's what I would like to see more of. How do you have the conversation? How do you have those hard, hard, challenging conversations? What I learned in my MSW was at the end of the day, it's not always about the solution, it's about the process. Mm -hmm. It's about the dialogue. Can we have respectful, meaningful dialogue? Can we not always agree? What I learned um, in my class of 30 is that we all had different responses in our discussions, but it was a lot of it was based on who we were and where we came from. How do we, we have to honor that? Mm -hmm. It's not about a right, right answer, wrong answer. It's about like, let's all put this in the room together and talk it through. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what's important when I think about anti-oppressive practice. And did you did you mention affirming practice? Yeah, affirming. Yeah. Okay, okay. So we've got three models right now, mm -hmm. um, and I can also send you the um, uh, the reference for this, Grzanska and Miles. Mm -hmm. So they talk about three phases of counseling, and and the first phase is pathologization, which we all know that's 1870 to early 1970s, mm -hmm. very pathologizing ideas, conflating gender and sexuality, um, thinking that they're very much the same. Um, we had conversion therapy, castration, mm. um, all these, you know, changing the person, stopping the behaviors. Then we had incorporation, which was um, after 1974, when homosexuality was removed from the DSM. And here, there's an attempt now to start naming uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual identities, not really a centering of trans identities yet. They're still pathologized. Um but we're still seeing lesbians as a group and gay as a group and bisexual as a group and not really, really looking at the finer nuances. The last model since the 1990s, and this is, this is a really important point. The, nice, the last 
the last uh, model that we have affirmation affirming therapy or it's called gay affirming therapy or lgbt affirming therapy mm-hmm. since the 90s um so we want to affirm we want to support we want to show our understanding um but it can still be problematic because i don't know that it's really integrated intersectionality mm-hmm. i don't think it's really incorporate really really integrated yeah, a good point yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so if that's the last model we have, and that's since the 1990s, we, it's time for the next one. Yeah, right. Well, that's, uh, is that going to be you, Mary? Are you gonna... I think so. <laughs> yeah. I think so. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I think that's what we're ready for. We yeah. need the, for the next model that coming out is not the goal. Yeah, coming yeah, out yeah. is not the end result. Coming out, coming out is not when after that everything is fine. Coming out is not what everybody wants or is not, right. not even realistic or appropriate. So, yeah, what's the next model? It's it's something that's queered, intersectional, world-making. Yep. And, and again, as constructionists, we're not really keen on the language of models or frameworks, but a practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what we need. Okay. F- I, my last question for you. This has yeah. been wonderful, Mira. Thank you. Uh, but I, I do like to ask everybody, like, what books, ideas, films, music, whatever, what is capturing your attention these days? Mm. You know, I'm at the end stage of my PhD. So my gift, as I'm finding my first gifts for myself, as I started to, as I'm starting to have more time is to read novels. And right now I'm reading for Zana Doctor, and she, I actually know her from Toronto. She's a social worker, therapist, um, and she's written, I think this might be her fifth novel, so I'm behind. Mm -hmm. This might be her fifth novel, so I'm really enjoying her work because her work, her novels speak to me because the the stories take place in Canada or North America and India, Mm -hmm. often in Gujarat or the Gujarati speaking, which is the language that my family speaks. But also there's a real important attention to feminism, mm. to queerness, to gender identity. So it's like a novel, but that also speaks to me politically. Mm. I think that's, I'm really enjoying her novels. And mm. then a few weeks ago, we have a beautiful festival here called Indian Summer Festival. And this is also, again, very Canadian. So your Canadian um, uh, uh, audience will know this. Mm. But I, I was able to hear these two speakers, Robin Maynard, who's... Um, does a lot of work around black anti-carceral mm. practices in Toronto. Um, and Leanne Bedasama Saki Simpson is an indigenous scholar and it's called rehearsals for living. And these are letters they wrote to each other during the pandemic. Wow. Okay. And I heard them speak at the Indian summer festival and I was moved to tears when Robin read the first letter in the book. And I think Leanne then reads the last letter in the book, reads mm. them out loud. And I was so moved because they, I'm really interested in coalition for, coalition building and social justice movements yeah Yeah. and so what they talk about is how our histories as black and indigenous people have become intertwined through genocide resource extraction Mm -hmm. um stealing of land stealing of identities and i just can't wait to read this Mm -hmm. i really really am really excited so it's next on my list um but it's it's to me it's because it's a bit that 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 piece around how we work together. And that's what I learned from BLM, Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter. They were really about coalition building yeah. as, as a true social justice movement. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I'm really interested in that. How do we do that? And that is around the world making, right? How do we yeah. coalesce and um, f- around political power, around all the stuff that's, you know, that, that's important right now. So 
Mara, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I appreciate you making the time. And just uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Chris. I really enjoyed talking with you today. Thank you for this opportunity. All right. That's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing with a friend. Thanks for putting these in your syllabi. Uh, and using them as educational tools. That's the best. Anyway, uh, please find me on social media at The Radical Therapist on Instagram, Dr. Chris Hoff on Instagram. Uh, you can find uh, The Radical Therapist on Facebook. You can, I think that's really it. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, anyway. But, or if you're interested in The Radical Cy- Encyclopedia, I just <laughs> mentioned earlier in the show, Please shoot me an email at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and and have you contribute. That would be great. And I'll get you all the information. So just let me know. And other than that, I think that's it. And as always, thanks for listening. Peace.